0: At this time, uh, open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, using a pew Bible, it's page 987, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, today we're going to be meditating on one verse, verse 16, and before we read God's word, let's pray together. Oh, Father, we need your help. We are sinners, and we're prone to wander, prone to be distracted, prone to be tired. So please help us, Lord. Help us to engage with you through your word uh, as we should. Uh, Work in our hearts, Lord, especially as we meditate on this command to rejoice always. Teach us what this means. Teach us how we can obey it. Uh, Give us conviction where we need it. Give us repentance and faith where we need it. Transform us all now. Help me to preach clearly, faithfully in a way that honors you. And we do pray that in all that's done here, Jesus would be exalted. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 5 16. Hear the word of God. Rejoice always. May God give us ears to hear his word. Recently, I was listening to a podcast on good traits leaders unconsciously exhibit and that followers are unconsciously drawn to. Let me repeat that and then I'll explain what I'm talking about. These are traits good leaders unconsciously exhibit and that followers are unconsciously drawn to. The idea was there are several virtues that good leaders possess, um, but they haven't necessarily cultivated them, worked to uh, develop them in their lives. Uh, They were just born with them or developed them accidentally through the school of hard knocks. At the very same time, these identical character traits, people are instinctively drawn to. They don't cognitively think about it, but they just see uh, in a person these traits and are drawn to follow them. It was a really fascinating discussion. Now, most of these character traits, they made good sense. For instance, if a person possesses unusual self-confidence, they will typically become a leader, and people will typically line up behind them to follow them. The same was true of humility, self-discipline, charisma, integrity, patience, punctuality, even good posture, of all things. If you exemplify these, even unconsciously, there is a high likelihood that people will look to you as a leader, And when people see these, they're instinctively drawn to follow you. All of that made sense, but there was one character trait that took me by surprise. I did not see this coming. They made the claim that good leaders unconsciously exhibit joy. Similarly, followers are unconsciously drawn to follow those characterized by joy. I will confess, I did not see this coming. But they said that good leaders, regardless of how difficult the circumstances are, How confusing the times, how painful the trial, are able to have at least a glimmer of happiness in the midst of their pain. Again, I did not expect that, but the more I thought about it, the more I think they're right. I mean, just think about the people that were considered great leaders in the 20th century. I'm not talking about Christians here, but just great leaders of the 20th century. People like Winston Churchill. Franklin Roosevelt, Albert Einstein, Martin Luther King, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher. We could keep going. Very different people, but they did seem to possess this glimmer of joy despite the trials they were brought through. Would you agree? Now, as I thought about this, I began to wonder, why is the world like this? I mean, why is the universe engineered this way? Why are we uh, inclined to instinctively follow those who exhibit joy? And why do good leaders have a bit of joy? Where does that come from? Well, as I thought about this, I once again saw one more way in which all of us are created in the image of God. All of us, without exception, have been created by God in his image, and the God who made us is a God of infinite joy, inexpressible joy. That God created the universe, and he's designed us in part to partake of that joy. And when we see that joy in others, we're instinctively drawn to it. Now, why are we talking about these things this morning? Well, this morning we're going to be reflecting in depth on Paul's command there in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always. It's only two words, both in English and in Greek. But if you think about it, it assumes an enormous amount about the kind of God God is, about the kind of people we are, about the people we ought to be as the saints, And exploring the foundations of this command, exploring the implications and the applications of this command, really getting down to how can we put it into practice, that will be the burden of today's and next week's sermon, Lord willing. Before we get too far into this, however, you might be wondering why we've jumped to 1 Thessalonians 5.16. If you were with us last week, last week we finished with 1 Thessalonians 5.11. So why am I jumping down here to verse 16? Are we ever going to get to verses 12 through 15? Well, earlier in the week... I began studying a much longer passage. I began studying verses 12 and following. But if you glance there at verses 12 and following, you can see that that's really a collection of various commands, not all of which are immediately, obviously, related. I mean, if you look at it, there's a command there on honoring your pastors, a command on being patient with everybody, a command on praying without ceasing, a command on examining prophecies, several various commands. And to me, there wasn't an obvious organization to how they came together. And I'll admit that as I studied this section, I was not entirely sure how I was going to proceed. Was I going to preach one individual sermon on each command? Was I going to collect, say, several different commands and then put those together in one sermon? Was I going to do something entirely different? I wasn't sure. Well, as the week progressed, and to be totally honest, a lot of this was tied to reflecting on Eva Walker's life. I was more and more drawn to First Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. If you knew Eva, you knew that it, She really did exemplify this command. So today, the only command we're going to be reflecting on there is 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Lord willing, we'll come back later and look at the other commands. I'm just not entirely sure yet how we're going to proceed. But in meditating on 1 Thessalonians 5.16, there are two questions we're going to explore today and next week. Today, we're going to consider the question, why does God want us to rejoice always? I mean, of all the things God could have commanded us, why does he zero in on this as something that not only all Christians should do, but all Christians should do always? Why is that? Then come back next week and we'll consider a second question. How can I rejoice always? How can I practically do this? What biblical principles, uh, realities, truths, if believed and applied, uh, can help me to rejoice always? Lord willing, that'll be next week. Well, to begin with, let's talk about this first question. Why does God want us to rejoice always? I mean, again, God could have commanded us to do a variety of things, but why does he say rejoice, and not only rejoice, but rejoice always? To begin our thinking here, I want you to get a feel for how huge joy is as a theme in Scripture. I mean, this is a major theme in the Bible, and unless you've studied this before, you probably don't have a clue how big of a theme this is. If you were to begin with just a simple concordance search here, here's some of what you would discover. The words joy or rejoice or some variation thereof, they're used over 400 times in the Bible. The words glad or gladness, which are essentially synonyms for joy, over 150 times in Scripture. The term blessed, which I'd contend is very much connected to joy, used over 300 times in the Bible. You've got the term delight over 100 times in the Bible. You've got some rather obscure words for joy that we don't use in English very often, but the Bible uses words like jubilant Can't say I've used that word much lately. Exultant, thrilled, a couple more dozen times in Scripture. And then the term happy occurs several times in the Bible, depending on your translation. So when you combine all of that, we are talking about a massive theme that's everywhere in Scripture. Hundreds of verses, passages, narratives, songs dealing with joy. As I thought about it, I came to the realization that joy comes up in Scripture more than heaven and hell combined. This emphasis on joy it comes out particularly in the psalms, which I remind you were God's inspired hymnal for both ancient, Egypt and, or, pardon me, ancient Israel uh, and the early church. What that meant was that the ancient Jews, the ancient Christians, are singing these songs regularly, if not daily. And again, the theme of joy is everywhere. Just to give you a taste of this, listen to Psalm 21.6. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. In your salvation, how greatly he exalts. You make him forever blessed. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Psalm 32:11. 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. One more, Psalm 68, 3, But the, the righteous shall be glad, they shall exalt before God, they shall be jubilant with joy. If you've ever read through the Psalms, you'll know that there are hundreds of verses like this, calling us to joy, to delight, to happiness in God. In addition to that, throughout the Old Testament, there were all these feasts and celebrations that the people of Israel were to observe. You may remember these. Things like Passover, Purim, Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booze, the Feast of Trumpets, and more. God commanded these celebrations, and if you read about them, they were supposed to be a really happy time. Not characterized by sadness and solemnity, not dourness and grief, but joy, happiness. Eat, drink, be merry, celebrate the works that God has done. Quickly, let me give you several biblical reflections here on joy. These, I hope, will illustrate how important this theme is in the Bible. Joy is how true saving faith responds to the message of the gospel. Far more than just intellectual comprehension, there is a joy there that Jesus has died for me. Joy is one of the fruits of God's Spirit, something the Spirit is producing in every true Christian. Joy will characterize a healthy Christian marriage. That's really what Song of Songs is all about. Joy should characterize local church life. Joy should characterize corporate worship. Joy should characterize our prayers. Joy is the attitude we take as we await Jesus' return, and joy obviously will characterize heaven. There's one idea in particular that I'd like to focus in on briefly, and that's how joy is the secret to strength in adversity. Did you know this? According to Scripture, the way that you make it through adversity is not a white-knuckling self-discipline. No, somehow you find joy in God, and that's what enables you to persevere, even when the pain is great. You probably remember Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. I'm sure you've heard that verse before. It's on coffee mugs, bumper stickers, t-shirts, it's everywhere. The joy of the Lord is your strength. But do you know the context of that verse? To remind you of the context, Nehemiah and some of the exiled Jews, they've returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. This is after the exile, after the destruction of Jerusalem. And you've got to imagine them basically living in a bombed-out war zone. If you've seen some of those pictures after World War II where just cities are decimated, just rubble, piles of bricks, it's probably similar to what Nehemiah found in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is leading them to rebuild the wall because without a wall, a city was entirely vulnerable. I mean, it was virtually defenseless without a wall. So they've got to get to this. Otherwise, the enemy will continue to pillage them, plunder them, destroy them. And if you've read Nehemiah, while he's rebuilding the wall, what's going on? It's an incredibly tense, dangerous situation. Sanballat and Tobiah, they're working feverishly to assassinate Nehemiah. These dangerous enemies watching 24-7. You'll remember they're trying to build with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. I've never been in a war zone before, but I've heard it's unbelievably stressful. You can't sleep. You wonder every day if today is going to be the day that you die. Your mind is constantly wound up with anxiety and fear. Something like that is probably what Nehemiah and the Jews were experiencing in their quest to rebuild the wall. And it's into the midst of that context that Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord is your strength. Despite the dangerous enemies, despite the ruined buildings and rubble, despite the fact that we can't sleep at night because there are arrows flying over us, what's going to enable us to persevere is the joy that we find in the Lord. If we can somehow experience that, that will enable us to endure despite what's going on. So also for you, you might not be rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. I doubt you are. You're not fighting against Sanballat and Tobiah, but we are in a war with the world of flesh and the devil. Every day, the devil is on the hunt for us, seeking to devour us. And what is it that will enable us to endure? What is it that will enable us to persevere? Again, it's not sheer willpower, not just this sort of self-discipline that I got in the flesh. No, it's when you understand that the joy of the Lord is your strength. When you somehow figure out how to rejoice always, that's what's going to enable you to persevere through your pain. If we had time, I could show you from Scripture how heaven is a world of ever-increasing joy, how God is a God of eternal, unchanging joy, and how even as Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was there for the joy that was set before him. Are you starting to see how important this theme is in Scripture? I mean, there are many good things that God commands us to do, but he never commands us to do them always. God never commands us to eat and sleep always. He never commands us to work and rest always. He never commands us to, say, visit prisoners or feed the poor always. He never even commands us to read the Bible always or to sing his praises always or to go to church always, though so all of those things are very important. But he does command us to rejoice always. This seems to be something he wants characterizing everything. Every action, every activity, every good work, every relationship, every word we speak, every work day, every worship service, rejoice always, absolutely everything. This is why 400 years ago, when the Westminster theologians put together that catechism for teaching basic Bible truth to kids, this was the first question. Question, what is the chief end of man? You're probably familiar with this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Finding joy in God is really, really important, and I hope you've caught that from this first point. Let's move on. We've said a good bit about joy in the Bible, but we haven't yet defined it. Uh, So let's see if we can define joy according to the Bible. That's what I'd like to do now, a biblical definition of joy. Obviously, we're not going to rejoice always if we have no idea what joy is. So what is it? Well, here's how I think the Bible defines joy. Joy in the Bible is an attitude resulting in a particular way of life, which in turn produces pleasant feelings. Let me see if I can spell this out. By the way, is that big enough for you guys to read? Those in the back, can you guys read that? Okay. Obviously, I make these slides for you all, and if you can't read them, there's no benefit in that. So let me know if something's too small or if you can't read them. Anyway, join the Bible as an attitude. It's really primarily a mindset, the way that you look at life, which then results in a particular way of life, your behavior, which then in turn produces the pleasant feelings or the emotions. And if you get these pieces out of order, you'll really find yourself in a mess, Now, as I put that up there on the wall, you should probably notice that that is entirely different from the way in which the world looks at joy and happiness. Most people in our world, they look at joy and happiness almost like a cold that you catch. You just sort of catch joy. You catch happiness by accident. Uh, You're born with great looks, so or you're, you know, just by happenstance, marry the perfect spouse, or by happenstance, you get the great job, and that's why you're happy. That's the way that our world looks at it. Just by sheer luck, you have the right circumstances that make you happy. Realize that's the exact opposite of the way that the Bible looks at joy. The Bible looks at joy as basically a skill to be cultivated. Okay, keep that in mind. It's a skill to be cultivated. You can do much to acquire it and to nourish it. To illustrate this, take a look at this diagram, which I know I've shown some of you before. Take a look at this, and what is that? What are you looking at? You'd think so. Actually, that is your life. Yes, it's a train, but it's actually your life. This is designed to illustrate how we think, how we process things. Uh, Every day, we're living this way. Every decision we make, we're going through this process. This train is designed to illustrate your life. Now, without saying anything out loud, I want to give you three words... And I want you to think about what order they ought to be in. Okay, again, don't say anything out loud yet, but what order should they be in? Should it be feel, think, do? Should it be do, think, feel? What order? You know, what should be in the driver's seat? What should be the cattle car? What should be the caboose? Again, don't say anything out loud yet. What order do you think they should be in? Let me show you from the Bible how these things ought to be ordered. It ought to be think, do, feel. It ought to be think, do, feel. We often mess this up. We often get the order out of, out of place, but that's the way that it ought to be. Think, do, feel. Now again, our world gets this entirely backwards. Our world typically asks the question, how does this make me feel? Uh, I, I do what feels right. Uh, it, it feels so good it can't be wrong. That's the way that our world looks at things. That's how TV, movies, the internet is training you to think. And honestly, this is why so many in our world are so deeply unhappy If you've studied such things, you'll know that depression rates are skyrocketing, especially among young people. This is a huge part of the reason why. If you're here this morning and you're deeply unhappy, deeply unjoyful, it's possible that this is the problem. You've got the pieces of the train in the wrong order. We don't feel our way into our actions, we think our way into our feelings. And again, if you get the order out of place, you'll find yourself going off an emotional cliff. Here's how this all applies to joy. In the Bible, it's a grateful, thankful, humble mindset, which leads to a cheerful disposition, which then produces thankful feel- or pardon me, joyful feelings. Let me repeat that. In the Bible, it's this grateful, thankful, humble mindset, how I'm looking at things, processing things. That results in a cheerful disposition. I'm grateful for how God has been so gracious and kind to me, which then produces these pleasant, joyful feelings. When you really get down to it, joy is primarily an attitude, and the feelings are the side effect, not the cause. But again, when you get the order out of order, you find yourself in a lot of trouble. Now, to show you that this is how the Bible looks at things, let me read you a few verses, and pay attention to the order here. Uh, These verses say a lot of different things, but try to follow the order. Which comes first? Think, do, feel in these verses. Proverbs 16, 20. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good. Blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. John thirteen seventeen. this might be a good one to memorize. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I just think, if you know these things, you do them, you're blessed. James 1, 25, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. One more, Romans twelve two. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Honestly, I could illustrate this with dozens of additional verses. The proper way you're to look at your behavior is think, do, feel. You think your way into your feelings, you don't feel your way into your actions. This, incidentally, is why the Bible can command us to have joy. Have you ever thought about how peculiar that is? I mean, if you're understanding joy as primarily this feeling you feel, how can the Bible command us to do that? I mean, we can't really control our feelings, can we? And yet the Bible commands us. That's one of the places to have joy, not just First Thessalonians 5.16. For example, Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Matthew 5.12, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Luke 10.20, uh, do not rejoice in this, the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Those are all commands to be obeyed. And, and if you call yourself a Christian, you are commanded by God to rejoice. How does that work? Well, if you don't get what I'm saying, again, this will not make any sense at all. How how can you command me to feel something? No, you're commanded to have the right perspective, which then results in a proper behavior, which then affects my emotions. And honestly, we all know deep down that we can turn this on when we want to. Okay, I, I know that I can turn this on when I want to. See if you've experienced anything like this. You ever had a really grumpy day? You know, you're angry at everybody? grumpy to your kids, grumpy to your spouse, grumpy to your coworkers. Just it seems like there's this cloud hanging over your head. We have this in my family. They sometimes say, "Don't bother daddy. He must have a really bad headache today." Um, hate to, you know, admit that with shame, but that does happen sometimes. Then all of a sudden what happens? The phone rings. You pick up the phone, and you're like, "Oh, hey, how's it going? So good to hear from you." You've gone from grumpy and dark to happy and cheerful in like 0.5 seconds. You ever been there? Now, what in the world is going on there? What's going on there is that we quickly jumped on the think-do-feel train. It happened almost instantaneously, but this is the process we went through. Our mind picked up that the phone's ringing. Instantly, our demeanor changed, and we started acting kind to this person on the phone, and what happened was the pleasant feelings caught up. It's that think-do-feel train, and within seconds, we were in a to- totally... And what's even worse is that sometimes we hang up the phone, and we shift instantly back to the grumpy demeanor. Again, I, kind of shameful how sinful we are. Thank God Jesus died for our sins. But that's, that sort of thing is what I'm describing here. And what I'm getting at is that when God calls us to rejoice always, he's calling us to keep your brain engaged, maintain that positive demeanor so that those pleasant feelings characterize your life. Not just when the phone rings, not just when the boss calls you into his office. But toward your wife, toward your kids, toward your parents, toward your coworkers, toward your neighbors, maintain this grateful, humble attitude, which results in a cheerful disposition, and then you'll experience those pleasant feelings. Being a Christian who's a grumpy old man, that really ought to be an oxymoron. Being a Christian who's this just wicked witch of the West, it's a contradiction in terms. Being this believer who's grumpy, crabby, complaining all the time, Probably an indicator you don't actually believe the gospel. For basic to being a godly Christian is this joyful, positive, cheerful demeanor. Now, at this point, some of you might be wondering, what about grief? I mean, isn't there a place for sorrow, sadness? Say my child has just died. Say a beloved uh, friend, believer, has just died. Say a non-Christian has just died. Isn't there a place for grief over sin and death? Or maybe you're wondering about depression. I mean, I've read the Psalms before, and I can see that sometimes godly believers get depressed. Is what you're saying contradicting that? Well, obviously, grief is very appropriate in its time and place, and seasons of depression are to be expected. This is a sin-cursed world, and everything, including our minds and our hearts, are broken by sin. So to grieve, for instance, at a funeral... To mourn your own sin, to be distressed over the sinful state of our nation, all of those are very appropriate and right and can be God-glorifying if handled correctly. It's like Ecclesiastes 3, four says, there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. What I am, however, saying is that those really ought to be more the exception than the rule. A cheerful, grateful, positive disposition ought to be the usual you. A grieving, despondent disposition ought to be the unusual you, because the sort of normal modus operandi for the Christian is to rejoice always. And really, those who live with us will know whether we're rejoicing always or not. I mean, if you want to know, this is kind of, this will take a little courage, but ask your spouse, ask your kids, ask those who know you, do you really think I rejoice always? What do you think, spouse? What do you think, kids? Sure, I have rough days, and sure, we grieve those we love who die. But on the whole, do you see me rejoicing always. Ask them that, and then sort of let them speak honestly, even if they might say what you don't want to hear. Additionally, realize that with this way of looking at things, you can rejoice always, even when you're sorrowing. I realize that's Totally counterintuitive, but let me explain what I mean. You can rejoice always, even when you're sorrowing. True joy can exist, since it's rooted in this grateful demeanor, even while you're grieving. Think of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.10. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. What does that mean? We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing? Well, I think what I... What this is describing is probably what many of us will experience at Eva Walker's funeral. Will there be grief and sorrow because our sister has died? Of course. Obviously, we loved Eva dearly, and we will miss her. And it is righteous to grieve the wages of sin. But if you knew Eva at all, you knew that she had such bright faith in Jesus, such deep love for Jesus. She was so longing for heaven that we will rejoice with her at her funeral. I mean, honestly, Eve is more joyful now in heaven than she ever was in this life, to the point that she wouldn't come back to earth if she could. It was a privilege to know her, so at her funeral, there will be, and if you've been to the funeral of a godly Christian, you know what I'm describing, there will be this strange blending of sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That's what it means, brothers and sisters, to rejoice always. We're almost done for today, but let me give you a few miscellaneous thoughts on joy. I wasn't quite sure where to fit these in, but I thought they were important to say nonetheless. So let me give you a few miscellaneous thoughts on joy. First, realize that rejoicing always is actually an expression of love for neighbor. You have a moral obligation to cultivate your own joy. Rejoicing always is actually an expression of love for neighbor. You have a moral obligation to cultivate your own joy. Now, many of us think of joy as sort of a selfish thing. I'm rejoicing for myself because I enjoy it. Realize the Bible does not look at it that way. In the Bible, joy is a virtue and a means of loving others. This is why in the fruit of the Spirit passage, Galatians 5, the very second fruit mentioned after love is joy. And this is why in the Psalms, one of the ways that we love God is by finding our joy in God. And honestly, we know this from human relationships. If you tell somebody, I really enjoy being around you, what are you communicating? You're basically communicating, I love you. Listen to these verses and note the connection between joy and love, and you'll see the way in which they're almost two sides of the same coin. <laughs> Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord. Philippians 1.7, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brothers. First Peter 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Again, love and joy, they're essentially two sides of the same coin. And you're honestly kidding yourself if you think you can be this sort of grumpy, crabby, complaining person and still love people? I mean, if you doubt this, just ask somebody who grew up with a habitually unhappy parent. You know anybody like that? Or a habitually angry parent? It makes life absolutely miserable. I mean, even if they're kind and generous in a lot of different ways, they give you a nice home to live in, they bring home the bacon, they don't abuse you physically, verbally. Uh, If they're Grumpy and angry all the time makes life miserable, am I right? And it's totally unloving. I ask you, brothers and sisters, are you failing to love your family members by refusing to rejoice always? Are you being an unloving parent, unloving spouse, unloving child, because you're always going around with a sullen, grumpy demeanor that alienates people? Are you a bad employee, not because you're lazy or you're incompetent or you're stealing from the cash register, but because you're this cranky person that everybody avoids? Realize that by doing that, you're failing to love. Failing to love your neighbor, failing to love your family members. For rejoicing always is an expression of love for neighbor. You have a moral obligation to cultivate your joy. Quickly, another important point I don't want you to miss. Realize rejoicing always is a powerful attraction to the gospel. Rejoicing always, and it might be the most powerful attraction to the gospel, the most attractive thing. Along these lines, I've got to think of Acts 16. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas, they're in Philippi on a missions trip. They preach the gospel. They see some people converted. They help organize them into the church in Philippi. But then you'll remember Paul and Silas, they get in trouble. They're preaching the gospel. They get arrested. They get thrown in prison. And if you know anything about the prison, they were thrown into It was like a dark, slimy dungeon, not a pleasant experience. Let me read you the description from Acts 16.22. The magistrates tore the garments off Paul and Silas and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now That would be a pretty miserable experience, and I confess I don't know if I have the spiritual maturity to rejoice under such circumstances. Getting beaten, thrown in a dungeon, feet locked up in stocks, But do you remember what Paul and Silas are doing? Acts 16, 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So imagine them there. Their backs are bleeding, their feet and hands all chained up. But what are they doing? They're singing God's praises. And if you know anything about how the Psalms work, one of the best ways to jump on that think-do-feel train is to sing God's praises. You sing God's praises, that fuels your gratitude, which in turn produces joy. And that's what Paul are doing. Paul and Silas are doing. And if you know the rest of the story, what happens? There's this miraculous earthquake. Uh, The jailer thinks everybody's taken off and he's about to kill himself. Paul says, no, we're all still here. And then what does the jailer say? Uh, Pardon me, Acts 16.30. Sir, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, why in the world did the Philippian jailer ask this question, what must I do to be saved? I mean, where did that come from? You know, if I'm in prison and I see these sorts of things happen, my instinct is not to say, what must I do to be saved? What did he see that drew them to them and moved him to see his need for a Savior? I think it was the joy that he saw in Paul and Silas. When he saw them singing God's praises, praying together, even after being beaten and chained, when he saw them rejoicing always, he could tell, they've got something I don't have. They they know the joy of the Lord is their strength. And really, it was their happiness in the Lord that drew the Philippian jailer to Jesus. Think about 1 Peter 3.15. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. I'm sure you've heard that verse before, but realize that verse is assuming that non-Christians will approach you and ask you about your hope. It envisions unbelievers coming up to you and saying, you know, you got something I don't have. What's up with you? I mean, you've got a hope, you've got a joy that I don't have. Where can I get some of that? Well, if that's what this verse envisions, could it be true that the reason why non-Christians aren't approaching us to ask us about Jesus is because they don't see any joy in their lives? They don't see a reason for a hope. And maybe could it be because we're grumpy, discontent most of the time? Believe, brothers and sisters, rejoicing and always is a powerful attraction of the gospel. And I mean, even from a common sense perspective, why would I want to become a believer in Jesus if I'm just as grumpy and sullen and complaining as everybody else? Let's work to cultivate our joy in the Lord. Individually, true happiness in the Lord, that will do more for your evangelistic witness than, say, a hundred philosophical arguments for the existence of God. And as a congregation, if we become known as a joyful church, I mean, that's worth more than a million dollars in Facebook ads. Well, there's one final point I'd like to make this morning, and it's with this that we'll close. But realize, finally, that you will never rejoice always until you're confident that you're at peace with God through Jesus' death and resurrection. You will never rejoice always until you're confident that you're at peace with God through Jesus' death and resurrection. I mean, you think about it, but this is common sense. If I'm going around all the time thinking God is angry with me, constantly unsure what's going to happen to me after I die, living every day as if today might be the day that I fall into hell. I can't rejoice always. I mean, I might be able to fake it, which a lot of people do, but it'll be plastic and insincere, and sooner or later people will pick up on my hypocrisy. The only way that I'll be free to rejoice always is when I'm confident that I have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. I read Luke 10.20 earlier, but think through this. Jesus says to the apostles, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Here Jesus is talking to people that had the ability to cast out demons with a word. You know, they could just go up to somebody that's possessed and be like, out, demon, and the demon would leave. I mean, and that would be a pretty cool skill to have, don't you think? And yet what Jesus is saying is that there's actually something far more important than being able to cast out demons. It's being sure that you're on your way to heaven. If you're confident that you're on your way to heaven, that will bring you a joy, a happiness that nothing else can produce. How can we be sure that we're right with God? How can we be sure that we're on the way to heaven? How can we be sure that we're headed to the Father's house after this life? I'm glad you asked. The Bible teaches us that God is the loving creator of the world, the joyful creator of the universe. He made everything. All planets, all stars, all water, earth. He made everything. And he made you and me. And he made us in his image to know him and to experience that joy that's been in his character for all eternity. And yet the reality of it is we have sinned. We have lived the way we wanted to live regardless of how God designed it to be lived. We've tried to really live as if there is no God when in reality he is a loving heavenly father who delights to care for us. And what's more... It's in him that we find our ultimate joy. Now, because God is good, he will punish us for our rebellion. He will pour out his wrath on us for our sins, both in this life and also in the life to come. And unless we are saved, unless we have a savior, we will suffer eternally in that real place called hell. And yet under those very circumstances, God still loved us. And that's really the most remarkable feature of the gospel. God loved sinners. God loved those who rebelled against him. God loved those who rejected him and sought their joy in everything but him. And what did he do? He provided a savior, a savior for all people. God the Father sent God the Son to earth. God the Son took on human flesh. He was born as a baby to the Virgin Mary, given the name Jesus. He's fully God, fully man in one person. Jesus grew up and lived a life of perfect obedience, perfect trust in his heavenly father. In reality, he's the only human that's ever rejoiced always. But if you know the rest of the gospel story, you know that Jesus died a horrible death. When he was in his 30s, he was arrested, unjustly tried, and nailed to a cross. And it was on the cross that Jesus bore the wrath of God deserved by sinners. This is how a holy God can forgive sinners while remaining righteous. By dying in our place, Jesus satisfied the demands of God's justice for us forever. Jesus absorbed the penalty for the sins of all of those who had ever turned from their sin and trust in him. Three days later, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead to demonstrate that our hope is not in vain. And now he's calling us, every last one of us, to turn from our sin to embrace Jesus and be saved. Turn from your sins. Stop running from God. Stop trying to find your deepest joy in everything other than God. Rely on Jesus' death. Rely on Jesus' resurrection. And become joyful children of God. Ultimately, you will never be able to rejoice always until you're confident you're at peace with God through Jesus. But this is exactly why Jesus came to earth. This is exactly why Jesus died. And this is exactly why Jesus rose again from the dead. So that you and I could be forgiven Saved, become children of the joyful God and experience some of that joy in this life and that joy eternally in the life to come. So in conclusion, I beg you to trust Jesus now. If you've never committed yourself to the Lord Jesus, do it right now. Right where you are, turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus. Stop running from God. Embrace Jesus' death and resurrection. Rely on him as the only means to be made right with your creator. Do that now and be reconciled to God. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on something that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you. Please talk to me after the service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But come to Jesus today, and today be made right with the joyful God. Now to wrap up our time this morning, realize we have merely scratched the surface of a massive, massive topic. We've seen today how the Bible has so much to say about joy. I mean, we could easily turn this into like a 10-week miniseries if we wanted to. God's Word is constantly calling us to joy, to delight in the Lord. In fact, this is one of the major themes of Scripture. We've also seen this morning how far from being this fleeting feeling, joyful, joyfulness is this attitude, this perspective that we take on life uh, that changes the way that we behave and then the way that we feel. It's that think, do, feel, train to rejoice always. We've also talked about the way in which rejoicing always is an expression of love, how it's a moral obligation to seek your joy in the Lord. And we've discussed how rejoicing always is a powerful attraction to the gospel. But all of this begs the question, why? Not why, how? I talked about why today, it'll be how next week. What you said sounds good. I want some of this, but how? I mean, I, I don't really get it. How can I rejoice always? How practically can I do this? To understand that, you'll have to come back next week. Let's pray. Dear God, Lord, it is amazing to think that you desire to share your joy with us. We who are sinners, we who deserve your wrath, we who deserve not even a glimmer of sunshine. You want us to enjoy the joy that's in you? Lord, thank you for all that your word teaches on joy. Thank you for the commands that you have given us to rejoice always. Thank you for the way that we can obey these commands once we're right with you through Jesus. Please work in our lives. Make us individually joyful people who are humble and grateful for all of your gifts. As a congregation, make us a joyful church. And I pray that you would use our joy to attract people to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.